Cars on Call is a different car podcast. Two car guy physicians join noted automotive authority, Adams Hudson, to discuss car topics you won't find anywhere else. I'm Steve Schutz, and I've been publishing new car reviews for almost 30 years. Stefan Moran is a trauma surgeon who has published articles in the automotive safety literature and operated on countless car crash victims. And Adams Hudson is a now-retired successful businessman who has bought, sold, and owned over a hundred top-shelf enthusiast cars. Welcome to Cars on Call. Welcome to Cars on Call. I am Steve Schutz, and I'm here with trauma surgeon Stefan Moran and automotive enthusiast extraordinaire Adams Hudson. Adams, how are you? I'm doing terrific, Stephen. Hope you are. Yeah, I'm great. It's fun. I am not only cold in my friend's basement searching Wi-Fi and access, <laughs> but I'm also wet and because uh, we're having a hell of a storm down here in Alabama. So, yeah, Sorry to hear that. Um, it's a first world so, problem. So in other words, you're just all perky and happy as usual. As usual, yeah. As, <laughs> yeah, yeah just a little more curmudgeon than usual or, <laughs> or maybe obstreperous as well. <laughs> I'm not allowed to use words with more than three syllables, but on occasion I do. My wife doesn't like it because I don't use the words properly. Yeah. Well, I hope the weather uh, turns. Hey, uh, I read something. So one of my favorite magazines to read is Car Magazine from England. I don't know if you guys read it, but. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I love it. We're not going to afford it. Yeah. One of the things I like about it is I pick out phrases because they're so good with words and expressions and stuff like that. I mean, just you looking for the extemporaneous phrases. What are you looking for? The extemporaneous phrases. <laughs> that's a Steph word. So yeah, that's a big word. I think that I think that might be four syllables. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was four. Anyway, that's funny. Anyway, um, so they just say stuff that is funny, and they had one thing where they're talking about the Alfa Romeo Tonale, and that's the small ACV. We talked about it. It's it's going to be new in, in the United States this year. It's coming out soon. Uh, so they were reviewing that. And not surprisingly, they had a bunch of electrical and other problems with it. And the line that they used was, they had so many problems with this Alpha Romeo Tonale. They said, maybe they should call it the Beta Romeo. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's, well, you know, you, you yeah. I, think that, I think that's great. But you think about it. EVs and all the new cars, there's so many electronics they're trying to get in the market that, you know, they're constantly doing software upgrades. And really, it's amazing to think of, think about where we are today in the world that you will buy a piece of software or upgrade your operating system on your phone, iPhone, whatever. And you know, it's going to have bugs and problems, but the software companies have gotten us to the point where we're okay with buying a product that's not ready for prime time, but your car and uh, there's going to be a long time before that happens. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Yeah. As, as much as we're inconvenienced at our desk over the new software, that's something you can kind of work through. But you don't want to be inconvenienced between Kansas City and Wichita. <laughs> no, no. No, you don't. Anyway, so the second thing I want to talk about is, I don't know how many months ago we talked about this, Stefan, but we're like waving the flag like, hey, you know, hey, you know, this is all cool. And. If you go to a place, you should visit, you know, some kind of place that's like automotive. And you and I, of course, went to the Wellborn uh, Muscle Car Museum last summer when we were driving through the area. It was absolutely worth it. Well, you did that. You were in Maryland recently, and you went to a place. Tell us about it. 
Yeah, so I uh, went to Annapolis Thanksgiving with the family, and then we drove over what they call the Eastern Shore, and there's that's the old part of Maryland that was settled a long time ago. And there's we're in St. Michael's, which is really a very quaint little town. And walking by, and I see a sign for the Classic Motor Museum of St. Michael's. And it's a gorgeous barn, pole barn inside, all finished open wood and trusses. And they had, I'd say, probably about 60 cars in there. $10 entry fee. I didn't have time to get a, a tour by one of the gentlemen that had cars there. It was just given, I, I could overhear his conversation, just amazing details about all the different cars. But they had three cool cars that were worth mentioning. They had a C1 Corvette in that really light turquoise blue and white I thought was cool. And then right next to that was a 69 Boss 429 Mustang in white, which is gorgeous. And then the coolest car in the collection that I thought, they had several MGs and they had an Austin Lee 3000, but they had a 1936 SS Jaguar 100. And what's cool about this car is that they don't know who did the body, but somewhere before World War II, it was a Salchwick-inspired body, but they took the rounded fenders and actually peaked them down the middle. So add some angularity, and the car was absolutely gorgeous. I could have done without the alligator leather interior and matching suitcases, but I, I did find it interesting. But the car was visually gorgeous. And that, so, I was, you know, like I said, always look for an opportunity. We found it, and I went to the car museum, and it was a really cool, very nice collection. That is awesome. That is that's, that a, is. that's a quite an eclectic collection. I, I love looking at collections of cars and sort of trying to follow the mindset if there is one. And generally, there there would be. I mean, it's either affordability or period or something that kid, the the person who bought it when he was a kid was interested in. But sort of to try to follow the theme. They but, call it a rotating collection of classic cars. So I think it's all the rich people in that area, or people that have collections. They rotate the cars in and out. So the cars are on oh, the runner. Gotcha. It wasn't one dedicated. So I think that's what makes it pretty cool that every time you go back, you're going to see something new. Um, that's and cool. Real hidden gem. Uh, great little, definitely if you're in the area, go to St. Michael's, Eastern Shore, Maryland. Stop by. Great collection. As a point of trivia, the Jaguar SS, which SS just sounds cool because we think about it in terms of uh, our performance here growing up for super sport. But back in the Jaguar days, does anybody know what the SS stood for? I feel bad no. because the guy was telling the other guy that, and it already, you know, already, you know, that penguin is not on my iceberg anymore. It slipped off. I heard him <laughs> say it. <laughs> you know, like there's too many penguins on my iceberg of a Brano race. I can't, I heard, you know, full of useless medical data and information, but he said what it is. So refresh us again. It's the Swallow Sidecar. That's and right. They, oh. Yeah. That's how that's how they started that company, and they just held on to the SS. But what a what a cool couple of letters to to bring forward. I mean, just it just sounds performance oriented. It does. That's amazing. Until you say it's the Swallow Sidecar Company, which sounds slightly less performance oriented. Okay. Yeah. The SS uh, that's, Jaguar. That's really cool. I had no idea. Uh, so that's the second time in a row you've gotten us with two equal letter uh, initials. It was Ferguson Formula before, so. Thank you, uh, Adams. That's amazing. I had no idea what SS stood for. Well, I don't Obviously, about the Ferguson thing. So, Super <laughs> Sport, man. Super Sport, like the Chevelle. Yeah. Obviously, Adams' brain is full of automotive penguins. So, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Chipping their got, way out. I have a lot of penguins myself. The problem is they keep falling over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
All right. So yeah, you know, anytime you have a chance, go visit these places because they're super cool. Um, hey, we were talking last week about the Porsche 911 uh, GTS and how it had about 30 horsepower more than the S. And, you know, in the old days, they had to actually work to get more horsepower. Now it's really just software to, to basically turn up the turbo boost. You have a 911 the Carrera and then the Carrera S and then the GTS and they all have the same engine and they just basically turn up the boost. So getting more power is easy. And Stefan made a crack, uh, which I thought was fun. We all thought was funny. And he said, do they charge a subscription price for that extra horsepower? And we laughed and we thought that was funny. Well, uh, the answer of course is no, they don't. But the answer surprisingly, uh, we just found this out. Uh, Mercedes has a plan with their electric, uh, their all-electric cars, and that would include the SUVs and the sedans. They have a plan to charge customers $1,200 a year for enhanced performance. Stefan, you called it. What What do you have to say to Mercedes? Oh, geez. Wait, wait before Stefan answers, I think it's clear Mercedes-Benz is listening to the podcast, but go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, they call it acceleration increase. And the quote unquote from Mercedes is while they're stumping away your cash is unleash enhanced performance for your car. Well, think about it. If Apple charged you every single upgrade for your phone, for your iPad, for your Apple watch, for your laptop, you, you wouldn't tolerate it. And I remember in the old days when they did charge you for new operating systems, they don't. They're charging you $100 a month to unlock a software key. And it drives me absolutely insane. And I can tell you, I will never buy a car where I got to pay extra. You know, I'll go pay extra gas, you know, at the pump to get some 93 aviation fuel or something, get some more horsepower. But the idea that you got to pay to have software unlocked on your vehicle that basically now is a rolling computer. I think, I think it's complete bullshit. I think it's a mistake. First of all, who needs more? Who needs They already have enough horsepower, you know? Yeah, it irritates me highly. Well, it, it, it irritates me too, and Stephen, I'm, I'm I'm waiting for you to hop in here too because I mean you, you're up on the new cars and the new car trends and the whole subscriptionization. If that's a five syllable or we can throw in there, <laughs> it's just gone way too far. And I was looking at you know BMW wants to offer heated seat upgrades as a subscription. I was looking in Europe; they're doing that, but it appears that. Uh, Europe is, is saying no to this as an upgrade. So good for them. I don't know what's going to happen in the U.S. And Steve, you probably want to weigh in on that. Well, let me well, say one more thing. Here's the yeah. other complete vaporware bullshit thing. It increases your 0-60 time by 0.8 seconds. Okay. <laughs> 0.8 it? seconds. That's it. Well, yeah, it's probably- For $100 like, a month. It's probably 4.5 to 3.8. I mean, it probably is a significant change when you're talking about numbers that are that low. I, I guess I kind of get it. Here's what I would say. The three of us are basically outraged by this because we all know that it costs customers, you know, a hundred, as you said, it's a hundred dollars a month, uh, which is, you know, it's not a lot of money, but it's not nothing. So it costs a hundred dollars a month and it probably costs Mercedes three cents a month. So that's the, that's the problem. And it's, it's just seems gratuitous price gouging and nobody likes that nobody likes to be kind of abused having said that i think that in any kind of tech there is this kind of subscription model 
We do it with our phones. We pay by the month. You know, you pay for extra storage. And there's lots of things, you know, Strava or a lot of apps that you use that you pay by the month. So I think the younger people are okay with this. And that's what I th- I think that's what the manufacturers are counting on. But yes, it seems like a gratuitous money grab. Indeed. Agreed. And w- with the emphasis on the syllable, greed. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. <laughs> so Stefan, any other comments to, to just you know you you can this is your wheelhouse man you you're the one that noticed this well you know that I got, you called it one of the things we did you know if you ever bought a home i always tell you when you go to a closing it everybody gets a little piece of your ass you got to pay the ten dollar courier fee you got to pay the fifteen dollar fax fee then you got to pay somebody to pr- provide insurance on the work that they did for you meaning they bought, they did your title research. You got to pay their own insurance. So this to me is like, this is like going to home mortgage closing where they're just nitpicking you with these little fees here and there for a product that's already made and delivered. Yeah. Just, I, I guarantee you that I, I go to look at a car and they're going to tell me, yeah, you can drive out of here, but if you want to do, if you want to heat your seats, that's $10 a month. If you want to go a little faster, that's a hundred dollars a month. If you want to do navigation, you want to do autonomous driving i'll just turn around and leave i'm not i'm not, I'm not playing that game yeah because at what point do you actually own your car it's like yes. you're buying the thing but then you're still renting piece of it right yeah i i let's let's be honest this is something that's not going to diminish with time this is something that's going to increase with time we're going to see more the only thing is going to diminish is the old geezers like us <laughs> 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 you mean who actually do know everything? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we're not, we're not, obviously not, we're not the future, but let's face it, this is irritating. Uh, we're going to see more. And guess what? As more comes up and we see more, we're going to talk about it because this is something that we're in a transition period and, and, uh, I don't like it. You know, I feel really comfortable paying an extra $100 a month or whatever be, you know, on my, on my car note. If it's something that you knew an engineer spent a lot of time and they made more power through work, but if it's just a you know a couple lines of code and they're getting more power, it just seems uh, wrong. So. This, and this is the same thing. Like when you go buy a car, they chart. They said, well, on the invoice is a hundred dollars because they sprayed a coating on the seats. Then there's the hundred dollar mm-hmm. ceramic you didn't want. Then there's the wheel coating you didn't want. Well, we already have it on the car. You have you know it was part of the deal. And that to me is they're stealing. They should have learned from dealers that that kind of tacking on, adding on is not good for maintaining happy customers. You know, we, it, it, it's obviously it, it's irked us. It's hit a nerve. And I, I, I hope that it hits a nerve with some of the younger buyers who maybe are a little bit more acclimated to this type of uh, business model. However, if you look back at the days of the Scotch guard on the seats and the, the paint sealant and the wheel protection, what was the the reputation of a car dealer during those years. And it was largely earned and deserved by tactics like that. They've since right. calmed down and earned themselves a relatively reputable sort of standing. Uh, yes, there's departures in every industry, but I think the car dealers by and large have sort of like let that black eye fade and, and they are way more honorable now, I believe, honestly than they were back in the 70s when all that stuff was commonplace. But here we go. They're marching right back toward it. Yeah. And, you know, all these Bitcoin boys, I think they're going to be, they're going to, they're they're be pinching their pennies now. And I think another hundred bucks of Bitcoin that was vaporized is going to make it a little less palatable for them as well. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's good. Uh, let's move on. 
there was something that I, I really want to get your guys take on because it's something that is a very interesting, I would call it a moment in time. And I want to talk about it because it's, uh, it was when we were younger, but it was interesting. And, you know, historically, and this is, you know, you think back over the last 60 years, the best selling vehicle is always, it's, you know, perennially it's, it's a, it's a large pickup truck, typically the Ford F-150 and that's the best selling vehicle. And it's always been like that. But another thing that's always been like that is that the best selling car or the best selling non full size pickup truck is a family vehicle. It's for, you know, a 35, 40 year old set of parents with two or three kids. And that is the best selling vehicle. But there was this moment in time in the late 70s and early 80s. It was the era of the personal luxury coupe. And that all of a sudden was not true. And you went from family vehicles to this very brief era where kind of, I would call them selfish cars, became the best sellers. And then after that, it was family vehicles again, which is where we are now. And just to illustrate the point, I'm going to go through, first of all, some of the the names of, of that era, because these are very familiar names to us. And I just find it interesting because coupes do not sell now. And back then, these were best sellers. And the names are very familiar. Oldsmobile Cutlass, Pontiac Grand Prix, Buick, Skylark, Buick, Regal, Ford Thunderbird, Mercury Cougar, Chrysler Cordoba. I mean, there's there's even more. And I'm just going to go, before I ask you guys for your take, I'm going to go through some, some years and tell you what the best-selling vehicle was. And it just, again, you'll notice that this stands out. 1960, Chevy Impala Sedan. 1969, Chevy Impala Sedan. It would have been in 1970. It actually, 1970, it was a Ford Galaxy sedan. It would have been uh, Chevy, but they had a strike. So I'm, I'm going to call it the Chevy Impala sedan. Uh, 1980, Oldsmobile Cutlass Coupe. 1990, Ford Taurus sedan. 2000, 2010, both times Toyota Camry sedan. And 2020, RAV4 SUV. Isn't that interesting? And what do you think was happening back then? Because it hasn't, it didn't happen before, and it hasn't happened since. I find this interesting and fascinating. It's like sociology more than it is automotive. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And you know, there were there were fewer manufacturers during that first run up of best sellers, and yeah. so that there was there was a collective and a concentration of the of the big big sales among way fewer players. You know, we didn't even. Most of us, at least, did not know what a Toyota was until really in the in the eighties, and then. So when you're talking about the sixties and seventies, and I was looking up today, you know, the the, the Oldsmobile Cutlass in nineteen seventy six alone sold four hundred and ninety six thousand cars, one model, and that would be excessively braggable even today. And the car that was right behind it was a the Impala Caprice that you mentioned earlier, a mere four hundred and fifty four thousand units. And so the concentration of wealth, as it were, were really split up into the much larger pieces of the same pie. And it did seem like it's like you, you said, it's more of a, a societal profile of what people thought was cool. Often people use the word aspirational about the luxury coupes you're talking about. And aspirational doesn't have a swinging thing to do with automobiles. And it has everything to do with your socioeconomic perception in your neighborhood or your community, et cetera. And I think a lot of that was some statement profiling going on and you know i can play in this game too and you know you look back at those cars and how silly we were i mean people had 
school-age kids piling into a back seat that you had to fold the silly seat forward and scrunch in there, making sure that you tuck the seat belts between the seat back and the seat bottom <laughs> at the time. <laughs> it was just a different world, and I remember it a little too vividly. The other thing that's interesting about that era was 16-year-olds that were getting brand new cars as gifts, 17-year-olds graduating high school, they wanted a Cutlass or a Grand Prix. You know, my dad, we he bought a Chrysler Cordoba, you know, Ricardo Montalban. We didn't have the leather with the rich Corinthian leather. We just had the velour. Yeah. yeah. So we had we had we had a red Cordoba with a Landau top, a little round <laughs> opera window in the back, the red velour interior. And my brother and I thought it was as cool as my dad thought it was cool, which is crazy. When's the last era that a sixteen-year-old with a brand new driver's license? And his dad, I mean, there's some dads that buy, but dad buys a family car that is that cool. It's pretty rare, but so it's amazing that you know, dads love, my mother loved that car. They just thought, I think it was perhaps it just exuded affordable luxury and style to be cruising around too. And you're right. They did cram you in the back and it was a miserable backseat in those things. It was terrible, but it was, it like, was an interesting time. Yeah. I thought it was a, a you know, kind of a, almost a rebellion. You had the. The late 60s when the, the teenagers were driving muscle cars and protesting against the war and all of a sudden it seemed like in the 1970s parents no longer were were okay driving an impala sedan or a rav4 or a camry you know they wanted something that was uh, almost rebellious and it was it was different because let's face it before and after that era parents with kids didn't cram their kids they didn't put the seat forward and cram their kids in the back they had a four door, you know. That a, now it's a CRV. Back then, it was a Chevy Impala sedan. They they weren't satisfied to be in a family vehicle. I think also had to do Steve with some probably you know the end of the Vietnam War year as well. I mean, those were austere times, and people kind of pulled back. The country's kind of divided. The civil, you know, the Vietnam War ended about seventy five, and I think people just kind of opened up, and it was a little bit freer time, and people wanted to, I think, just look good and feel good about themselves and. And those were the cars. And uh, it was a new style of car that we hadn't seen in a long time in America, the T-Door Coupe. They were rakish. They were pretty cool. They were, of course, terribly underpowered and with smog admissions. But And they all had the ashtray in the back of the front seat. You know, we, we weren't allowed to use it, but it was back there. You had uh, to have it. I had to have it. it was inter yeah, a very interesting time. And I've been, I searched to see if any sociologist or anybody had addressed this topic. As well, you well picked it up, Steve-O. That you know what 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 drove this, and then then it went away. But it was, I, it I was will a, I will answer that question because uh, the sociologist and and then Adams, I'll let you chime in. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the sociologist uh, is is a sociologist you know well, uh, Stefan. It's my sister Erica who's always got a line. The advertiser, PR woman, now newspaper woman, and her line, which she she told me, I think she said this probably in the eighties. She said. In the late 60s, the kids, which is the teenagers, got into sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and it was kind of cute. And she said, in the 70s, their parents did, and it was a fucking disaster. Um, and, 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 and I think, take away the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I think wow. what she's saying is that, and, I, and what a sociologist might say, and this is my, my amateur sociologist, is that you know, the parents looked at the teenagers who were having so much fun in the 60s. They went to Woodstock and they were doing all this stuff and they thought, 
you know, gee whiz, I want to have some fun. Why should I have to, why should I be like a fifties parent driving an Impala or a 55 Chevy? Why can't I have some fun too? I'm going to have a fun car. And I, and it, it, it wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but in, in their own way, it was a little bit of rebelliousness by parents. I agree. Yeah. I, guess, I agree. I that's a great call. I do too. I, th- I think Erica was dead on. I'd never thought about it that succinctly, but I did read a, um, a brochure from like, I don't know, the 74 to 78, somewhere in there, the Monte Carlo. And it actually made a point in the brochure. This is the sales piece of the sales piece that had been scrutinized down and whittled to these valuable words. And it's been there. And I'm not, I'm not quoting it exactly, but it said the personal luxury coupe, no racing stripes, no silly graphics and no they didn't call it gearbox. They said, and no floor box for your transmission. They didn't even say gearbox. <laughs> it was floor box, whatever that is. Nobody's ever heard that phrase. But they were clearly trying to step away from whatever the loud, raucous muscle car era was and say, you know, th- th- this is your definition of a cool car, not their definition. Well, I agree with Stefan. They were certainly considered cool at the time. The only surprising thing was that they were such big sellers but i think we i think we've we've gone into that pretty well so uh, anyway an interesting moment in time and uh let's move on again and i am very excited to welcome mike clark to the show i met mike at a dinner party a couple months ago and boy does he have some interesting cars and uh, he's here with us mike's background is uh in marketing and public relations in the tech world and he was a success in California and has now moved up to the Boise area, uh, which is, of course, a benefit for us. But um, Mike's here, and Mike, I want to—I uh, want you to talk about your your cars. Start with the one, Mike, that was you and your car were invited to the Quail. That's a big deal. So, uh, hi and welcome, and tell us about your Bizzarini, and tell us about your experience with it, and I guess maybe how you, also how you got into Bizzarinis. Well. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Tell you a little bit about uh, some of uh, some of my cars. Um, the Bizzarini that started about thirty years ago when I uh, when I started to look for a Ferrari or a Maserati, and uh, I ended up at the end of the day purchasing a Isa Revolta GT. Wow! And uh, it's an Italian built car made in Bresso, Italy, and it runs a uh, 327 Corvette engine in it. So the maintenance on it, you know, you can get it done at Pet Boys, but the styling was done by Jajaro. And so, you know, for uh, entry-level exotic, it's a great car to own. So, you know, with that, I uh, I joined a very obscure club called the Iso Bizzarini Club. And over the years, I ended up owning actually all the models of ESO. That included the first one I bought, the Revolta GT. I purchased a Fidia, which is their four-door model. I owned two Grifos, which were the two-seat GTs. And I uh, currently have a ESO Lely, which is a two-plus-two. But I never owned a Bizzarini during owning all those other ESOs, and I always wanted one. The Bizzarini was the, he was the engineer that did the chassis for the ESO. He worked with ESO for about eight years, 
and he convinced them to go racing. And uh, Esau built a car called the A3C. It was entered at Le Mans in 1964, won its class in 65. And so I always, you know, always wanted to own the Bizzarini because it was basically the lightweight version of, of the ESO. Um, however, the price of the, of the Bizzarini was always too high for me to, uh, you know, to, to, to capture. And, and as the years went on, those, the prices just kept rising and rising. But then in um, early 2000s, Giotto Bizzarini was still building cars. He was building a run of about five to six P538 mid-engine roadsters. And I called him up and I convinced him to sell me just the body. And so that's what started my... uh, My build on my P538 Bizzarini. And five years later, after collecting lots of parts and talking to a lot of different people who owned Bizzarinis, taking measurements, I uh, completed the car. Wow. Where do we start? First of all, I'm frothing at the mouth. Uh, Mike, hey, man, this is Adams Hudson. It's so good to have you on the show. And I wanted just to mention one part in your in your fabulous intro and sort of historical run up of the of the um, the ESO to, to Bizzarini sort of lineage is tell the folks who was driving that car in 1965 because I think that's a nice a nice little feather in his cap. Well, Bondurant in '65 did drive for Bizzarini. Chris Amon was one of the one of the drivers. I'm not sure which. I mean, a lot of a lot of drivers did drive for Bizzarini. Unless this is typical Italian record keeping, what I saw is that the third driver was Giotto Bizzarini himself in 1965. I, I don't think that's correct, and I think Giotto he did test driving for ESO, and he also did it for Ferrari. He may have put his name down because he didn't have another driver at the time. I got you and there that back to the Italian thing. And I, you know, that that's just, just, just part of it. And what a lovely car. I don't know if any of the podcasters have actually seen a photo, but pull it up. It's just one of the most attractive looking cars that Mike has that I've, I've ever seen. I mean, I think an, an ESO Grifo is a lovely car. And then the race car, like you mentioned, the AC3, which really kind of became, if I've got this right, uh, kind of became the Bizzarini 5300 with a very low profile, like a 43-inch silhouette, just something crazy low and just aerodynamically lovely and the, the most perfect rear tail treatment I've ever seen on a car. I could take this down a couple roads. I kind of want to talk about your 538 a little bit, but fellows, uh, Steph and Steve, did you want to weigh in here? I've just got one comment on the 538, so welcome to the show. I'm pulling these up as fast as you're going through them, and those are some just cool cars, and I'm a huge Cobra fan, so any time you throw an American V8 in anything European, just I find really exciting and cool. But that P538, I'm just, I'm don't take this as a as a insult. I mean, it is really cool, and I see a little Mach One Speed Racer. They must have gotten some inspiration from this and some other Italian cars, and that and that rear three quarters profile. It's absolutely gorgeous. 
There's an interesting story behind the body of the P-538. Right before Giugetto Giugiaro was working at Bertone in the mid-60s, and Bertone knew that Giugiaro was thinking of leaving. Uh, he, he did eventually leave and go to Ghia. So he got a project in, Bertone did, but he didn't want to tell Giugiaro who the manufacturer was uh, because he was afraid that he was going to steal that customer. But he wanted him to do the work on the car. He gave him the, the information and he gave him the orders to, to you know, build a body for this customer. And Jajaro did the drawings and he ended up leaving. Well, that car ended up being the design for the Lamborghini Mura. Oh, wow. Okay. However, Jajaro's drawings weren't used. Gandini came in, saw Jajaro's drawings, and Gandini finished it and pinned it and put his put his mark on it. But Jajaro took that design with him and he put it in his back pocket and down the road he gave that design to Giotto Bizzarini. And Giotto Bizzarini in turn gave him the chassis of a P538 and Jajaro used those chassis parts to build his first car uh, for his own company, Ital Design, and that car was called the Manta. And today it's known as the Bizzarini Manta. So there was a little trade, body for car parts. That's Just fascinating. The, the Italian I, way. I did notice, uh, you know, I, I look at the Bizzarini and I see a lot of Mura there. It's, it's, it's interesting. I just thought it was the time. I didn't realize it was actually the same guy. So, yeah, Adams, Adam, Adams, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm just, just saying, you know, that, that fraternity of folks. And, of course, you know, as, as Mike knows the lore well, that, that you know, there, there are a lot of talent uh, poured into the streets because Mr. Ferrari and perhaps his wife had a lot to do with caused a little bit of an ousting in about 19. Was that in 61, Mike, 62, somewhere in there where there were, there were a lot of talent left Ferrari a little bit irritated? Mike exactly. The, they, it was called the Palace Revolt. And uh, I think about 30 or 40 different people that worked for Ferrari got together and demanded that he fire his wife, who was basically, uh, uh, you know, very uh, controlling. And um, Ferrari ended up firing all of them. So Bizzarini, Chitty, and Phil Hill, and a few others went to a company called ATS. Mm -hmm. ATS. Well, Revolta, Renzo Revolta in that crew well no Renzo, Renzo revolta was a was a industrialist and um he oh. was making scooters at that time oh you were correct that's right in refrigerators etc yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay right so bizzarini ended up he ended up losing that job at ferrari and uh, he went consulting and so uh, he, when he worked for ats he presented the engine for their Formula One car, which Phil Hill was going to drive. And it was a V12. And uh, Chitty didn't like, he didn't want a V12. He wanted a V8. There was a uh, butting of heads. 
And Ferrari took his uh, drawings, put them in his back pocket and walked down the road. And he went to a, uh, he ended up at a tractor company called Lamborghini. <laughs> and so the rest of that is history. You know, he, the Bizzarini designed the Lamborghini V12. He's got a pretty good resume and he had worked on the 250 GTO before he left Ferrari. So, so not exactly a bad couple of contributions to the automotive world exactly and then afterwards after the uh lamborghini gig well i should i should add that he got into a fight with lamborghini and uh he ended up having to go to court um, lamborghini didn't want a high revving engine Bizzarini read the contract and it said if he could produce uh so much horsepower over a certain amount that lamborghini would give him a bonus but he did it, but the engine was a high revving engine. Lamborghini didn't like that. They went to court, Giotto won. He left and then he went and worked for Renzo Revolta. And that's where he did the chassis design for all of the ESO cars. And eventually, you know, that was the A3C, which turned into the Bizzarini 5300 Strata. Incredible. <laughs> You know, you hear German stories, Mike, and, you know, it starts at A and it ends up at D with uh, B and C in the middle. And with an Italian story, you don't ever know where the hell it's going to go. <laughs> well, it's it's yeah. kind of like the British rock scene, you know, all the breakup of the bands forming the new band. It's, that was going on about the same time as well. Steph, that's a great observation, man. It really is a lot like that. And it's borrowed ideas and it's credit that was taken from someone else and someone gets super heated and PO'd about it. And, and a they, woman in the mix. Yeah, uh, right. Led, Ze Led Zeppelin didn't break up because everyone was pissed off at Robert Plant's wife. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, yeah. tell us a, a little bit on the 538. And I may have missed this. If you, if you said this and I missed it, that's my mistake here. But when they tried to resurrect the Bizzarini name with this 538, did they only sell it as an unfinished car? Did they ever finish any or like like what what caused you to intervene prior to it being finished that you said, I'm going to take that on? Well, the, Biz the Bizzarini's large, largest seller, and they only built 100 units, was the 5300 Strata, which was a front engine, mid-engine front engine car. You, and and so you know Bizzarini was really into racing he he didn't really he knew that uh, he had to sell some street cars in order to to facilitate the racing um similar to what Ferrari was doing and the P538 was just a um the next step from you know going mid-engine front-engine 5300 Strata then he went to a full mid-engine race car and while the factory was still in in business they only made three p538s only one was registered for the street and that was a, a rare occurrence because one of the customers that purchased it was the duca diosta and so he had the pull to be able to street register that car the other cars they really didn't even have VIN numbers on them because they were race cars. And when you put a VIN on an Italian car back then, you had to pay extra taxes on it. So the three cars were built. One was raced at Le Mans in 1966, which is uh, 
kind of now a, a very famous race since the movie came out. But the 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 car only finished uh, two laps. It ran over uh, another part off of a that fell off of a car, and um, they jacked it up in the pits. And the frame of the Bizzarini, it was used to uh, transport coolant and transport oil. So when they jacked it up, they cracked the uh, the tube, and its uh, it, its day was over. Wow. Wow. So hey, Mike, um, so you so you sorry. talked them out of a, a just a body and yeah. then you so how many bodies did they make? P five thirty eight bodies. So, so you know after, three complete I, cars. After Bizzarini went out went bankrupt uh in the let's see, that was uh oh I think it was seventy two or so. He continued to build cars. His wife and himself would build cars for customers. And when I was able to get a hold of him, he was building the last batch. He was building four P538s. One was with a Lamborghini V12, and the other were with um, the Chevy 327s. And I was just, you know, I, I was in the club and um, I had a few connections. And I was able to uh, convince them to to send me send me a body before you know they shut down um, you know the production because he was up in age at that time. He's in his eighties. So this is a composite or aluminum body? It's composite. Composite. And then you all, then you all found Bizzarini's race cars. The majority of them, I, I shouldn't say all of them, but the majority of them, he he used fiberglass. The, there was a few early cars that were rivet aluminum bodied cars, but he he knew that fiberglass was the was the ticket because of the, the being lightweight. So, Mike, take us from you getting you know the car and then going to the quail because you were invited this year to the quail, which is a, a very prestigious event. And Hell, you can't even buy a ticket to the quail. I mean, right? So, obviously, an, a, a true honor to be invited to that to that event with your car. So. Take us through kind of, you know, you get the car and then how that process worked and how you ended up being invited to, I mean, it's such an honor. Well, I'd say it's, you know, it's because I had two other cars that were accepted to the quail. The first car I had accepted was a 1974 ESO Grifo. It had a uh, Ford 351 Cleveland in it. And our club was, um, the, the mark was honored at the quail that year and so they accepted and then after you after your car is accepted to the quail they will allow you to submit cars um, moving forward and so the next car i submitted was i have a 1974 iso that went uh let's see two years ago and then i submitted um the p538 and you know the P five thirty eight is just a spectacular looking car, so th they accepted that, and uh, we we were honored to be able to to put it on the green. There it was a great what color. Car. Did you paint your P five thirty eight? So I painted it in the colors that Mike Gamino used um, when he raced his P five thirty eight at Bridgehampton in in um, the early sixties. It's a it's a deep blue. And the headrests are um, a like a almost a neon yellow. 
So kind of like what are those Pinsky colors? Yeah, die. Yeah, you know, like Sunoco. Sunoco blue and yellow are the exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Sunoco blue. Yeah. It should be mentioned, Mike, and, and I think you're being a little modest. You don't get invited to the quail unless your car is perfect. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's you know, they they're very nice cars that are on the green there. It's a great show. And if anyone ever has the chance, I know the tickets are are pretty expensive. Steve but, didn't tell you that, but it's well you're worth being invited to the show means you have to give us tickets. He didn't, Steve didn't mention that to you. <laughs> Evo, come on, dude. I saw that in the contract. <laughs> well, I got one more question about your car. Do you ha did you put uh, the horizontal opposed Weber's on top of the three twenty seven? So that um, that's interesting. You asked that. Um, Yes and no. I started, uh, I had a set of Weber's. I still have them. Uh, I put it on the car and I mounted them on the engine. I set the engine onto the frame and I had the oil pan, I'd say, I don't know, maybe three or four inches above the ground. And I couldn't shut the rear hood, the deck, you know, it, it wouldn't close. And so I lowered the engine down to where I could get it to close, and I had two inches of clearance. Hmm. So that was the standard fit. I mean, that's how Bizzarini built it. You know, it was a, it was a race car. So I, I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't run it on the street like that. I mean, I couldn't even get it out of the driveway with two inches. So what I did is I ended up using fuel injection. And that manifold and the in injectors allowed it gave me about oh, bought me about three and a half inches. Still and pretty so, dang slow. Yeah. Wow. So it's, yeah. it's injected. Okay. That's so cool. Anyway, before we let you go, Mike, uh, what's next up for you? Uh, I assume at some point you'll go back to the quail. Uh, any other cars that you're developing or, or working on? So right now, um, in fact, I was working on it today. I think, I think I, uh, I took this one part on and off the car maybe 20 times. I, got, <laughs> I have a 1974 Inner Mechanica Torino. Yeah. And um, before they got sued for using that name by Ford. So it's like a an, an Italia. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. With a 351 motor. Uh, this, this had the 302. And so my car is kind of interesting because the paperwork on it, it was all Torino. It's badge Torino, but the sales, all the sales information, or all the sales receipt and everything, that's all changed. You know, that's was uh, had to be updated because of the of the lawsuit. It was already in transit when the lawsuit took place. So badging and and looks are all Torino. The final paperwork is italia so your garage is 100 percent italian hybrid italian right you see the uh you see the uh the thread going through there <laughs> that's it but, it but it's such a great concept it's it's all that we know as to why those cars existed in the first place so so did you say the part that you put off and on 20 times you know it's the little the little door uh stopper you know in the inside of the door Okay, yeah. 
and it, and it's this little piece, and I think it's probably a Fiat part. And for whatever reason, every I could every time I I went to shut the door, it wouldn't shut all the way. I ended up taking like five pieces off and on to see which one it was, and I'm still a little bit perplexed. It's just that's just part of that restoration. You know, you have to do that sometimes. Things go on and off, and that's what you know. That's what a lot of people that have cars restored. They don't understand, you know, if they're paying for the work to be done, is that it, it sometimes it takes 20 or 30 times to get something just right. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to come across that word fettling that people would, the restorers would say, oh, they had to fettle the car. And I'd think, oh, that's just test driving. Well, there's a million more things than just that. It's the gauge needles that continue to bounce. It's the right brake light that won't come on. It's the funny noise in the front end over a bump. It's all that stuff. You know, I'll say this. There's Ford guys, there's Chevy guys, there's BMW guys, and there's Porsche guys. I don't think anyone's more interested than a Bizzarini guy. So, Mike, I think it's so cool what you're doing. Keep on doing it. And thank you for sharing your story. Well, thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. All right. Let's move on. Uh, moving on to uh, safety and Stefan. There was something you bumped into that you were mentioning that uh, is safety related that is very interesting. So go ahead and take us through it, because um, I, I know when you mentioned, I just said, that's really cool. Well, you know, we recently went through the daylight savings time on or off, and I never know which one it is. I just know that it's a major pain in my ass. And when I was on call, it would be an extra hour of call, and I always hated that. So this is about the deer in the headlights, something you really don't want to see going down the road. This came out by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. They did a study on looking for detrimental effects of daylight savings and they found that the end of daylight savings causes a 16 percent increase in collisions between deer and vehicles in the first week after the change so week before week after 16 percent increase in people hitting deers now you can say yep the deers are on the move they're in the rut it's kind of mating season but it just so happens that daylight savings occurs around that time and it's about 2.1 million collisions a year, 76% of deer strikes occur at nighttime. And they looked at if, if we'd moved to permanent daylight savings time, we could reduce crashes by about 1.7%. They say 1.7%, oh, that's not a whole lot. Well, if you're one of the 33 that die a year or one of the 2,000 that get injured, or you're the insurance company right now, $1.19 billion in damages, I mean, that's a big deal, you know, and then of one is a big deal when it's you or a loved one. So 33 is not insignificant. And they found that if we moved to permanent standard time, that would increase instances of crashes by 3.5%. So here's good science behind, we just need to do away with this whole switching on and off. And I know there's some states, I think Indiana is one state that doesn't do it. Hats off to those guys for just saying we're not doing it, but the question is, does, is it what Americans want? Well, a 2019 poll from the Associated Press showed that 31% of Americans are in favor of having daylight standard time year-round, and 40% supported having standard time year-round, Then 28% voted for switching between the two. Well, I think the majority of people want it one way, not the other, and this, this going ACDC back and forth from I to they to we, I just, I mean, I just, it's, it drives me crazy. I just, I don't, you know, as you get older, it's about, I want less noise in my life. 
I want the signal to noise ratio to change in a good way for more signal, less noise. And this is just noise that we don't need that actually kills people and injures people and causes a lot of damage. Hundred extra bucks a month, we can let you go to either one of those time zones you want. <laughs> subscription service <laughs> all around daylight <laughs> standard time. Yes. <laughs> but I think, man, I love your stats in this. That's what you bring to this thing is that if you just add up the I want standard or I want uh daylight savings, you add them up. That is a vast majority that just want one or the other. Just flip a coin and get there. Yeah, get, we just want you know some less chaos in our lives, less noise in our lives, something more constant. I mean, you know, you know, kids these days that you know they all have they don't have clocks at home, but you know, now your phone and your watch automatically switch over. But you know, you still got to change the one on the stove. You still get to change one on the microwave, and then you miss church or you miss that and you miss this. And I'm just I'm so I'm so tired of it. And, you know, that day I went out to go for a run at my usual time of four o'clock, and it's almost like pitch black. I'm like. Well, I'm not going to be running in the dark. So now I'm likely more likely to get hit. So there's, I'm sure there's other things. They look specifically deer collisions, but I imagine for pedicyclists and that's pedestrians and people on bicycles, I imagine you're going to see every bit as the same data. And I, I wonder, you know, I think that'd be interesting to see if insurance and see for highway safety would look at that. But I'm sure any, any collision between a car and something else that is not illuminated which would include pedicyclists is going to be a lot higher. Yeah, I think that's really, really cool, Stefan. And uh, for me, I, I totally agree with you and, and Adams too. And and that is that I just don't want to change it. Just keep it one way so I don't have to go back and forth. Uh, I never thought about it in, in terms of signal to noise, but you're right. We all want less noise when you're older because we have we already have less signal. So we want less <laughs> noise <laughs> for that reason. <laughs> Yeah, that's unnecessary noise. That is absolutely the truth. Yeah. But, right, you know, well, again, our politicians are doing anything about it. That's another story. They should. And and my gosh, I never thought that there was a safety implication. So thanks for that, Stefan. That's really cool. So that brings us to the end. And uh, yeah, way to get a vote. That's funny and true. So let's bring let's wrap it up. And this was a great episode. Thanks, guys. And Stefan, let's wrap it up. All right. Thanks, Steve-O and Adam. So, yeah, listeners, please look, listen, subscribe, like all that. Tell your friends, spread the word, and uh, we'll tune in next week.